Good morning to each of you. Uh, this morning, I am going to try to um, talk with you about the Anabaptist view of Scripture, and I'm hoping that uh, this will be both instructional and devotional. Uh, one of the challenges here is that uh, I have a lot of material, and I might be reading, I will be reading some, and maybe too much, I'm not sure, but I hope it's devotional. So, the material I have this morning is a summary of a presentation I gave in 2001, which is long ago, um, at Faithfield or at a colloquy. So the Anabaptist view of Scripture, there are a number of questions uh, surrounding this subject. I'll mention a few of the questions. Uh, the questions surround how do we know what is true? And uh, questions like who's qualified to know spiritual truth? What material should be used? as the basis for truth, which is a canon question. What rules of interpretation should be applied to the text? What role does the Holy Spirit have in determining spiritual truth? What's the relationship between the Holy Spirit and a person's reason? Is knowing God's will a purely rational exercise? And if it is, uh, why can't? Uh, unbelievers know truth as well as believers. If it isn't purely rational, how do you avoid uh, during, um, being led by uh, misled? How do you guard against dreams and visions? What is the relationship between the Old and New Testaments? What's the relationship between Christ, who's referred to as the living word and the written word, the Bible? And what role does the life and teachings of Christ have in determining God's will? And uh, what's the role of the individual? What is the role of, of the body of believers? And what's the relationship between tradition and the Bible? And there are other questions, too. I'll stop with that. I want to mention uh, two particular uh, 16th century issues related to um, interpretation of Scripture, application. So people in the 16th century had the idea that to every word there is a precise, the corresponds a precise thought into every label there's a precise meaning. And uh, people who have this view of the meaning of words assume that there's no variability uh, behind the meaning of words. And they look at understanding the meaning of words and truth as a science. It's a science. 
But the truth is that generally, and uh, those of you who know two languages know that this is true, the reality is that when you're trying to uh, translate from one language to another, sometimes, often, there is not a precise word in the language that you're trying to translate into that corresponds to the meaning of the word you're translating from. Uh, so th this, is, this is a challenge. Uh, the second item is 16th century people assumed they could use simple rules of interpretation in, to determine how scripture should be applied. And so, for example, Luther and Zwingli said, you can do anything the Bible does not explicitly condemn. That's the rule. And by contrast, Anabaptists said, you can do only what the Bible commands. <clears throat> and it might be worth you writing that down. You can do anything the Bible does not explicitly condemn versus you can do only what the Bible commands. And those rules, in their mind, they seem to work. And maybe part of the reason they seem to work is because they didn't have trains, they didn't have airplanes, they didn't have computers. They didn't, their world was based, basically like the first century. And, and I don't think they realized the challenge of laying Scripture on their life, what they saw, experienced, because it was quite similar to the first century. And so these rules probably seem workable, but of course the reality is they're not. They don't actually work. And uh, I'll mention as I go along some of the ways those kind of rules don't work. So <clears throat> when I went to Liberty College many years ago, uh, I took Greek, and uh, and in a, I don't know, it was about the sixth class I took. It might have been the last one, I don't recall. Uh, we were, the class uh, was studying Galatians from the Greek text. And uh, the instructors, about the fourth or fifth week of class, was expounding to us on a verse, I don't remember which verse, but it was a, a Greek word in the genitive case. And he was explaining to us uh, the possible meanings of this word. And uh, the genitive case can be translated in about 15 to 20 different ways. Depends how many, how many ways depends who you're talking to, I guess. Um, and he was explaining to us the meaning of that sentence based on which genitive method you used, whether it was of this of that or of that of that. And he got it narrowed down to three possibilities out of the 15. And then he said that he didn't know 
He wasn't decided on which of the three it was. And uh, one of the students, I can still see this, he raised his hand. He was very agitated. He was upset. And he said, he asked the teacher, okay, which of these three is it? And the teacher went through his thing again and said that it didn't really affect the meaning of the verse at all. There was no doctrinal issue related to which of the three it was. And uh, he refused to say. And the student said, uh, I don't know how you expect us. They just, these were uh, students learning to be pastors. I don't know how you expect us to preach the scripture if you can't help us understand how to, how to uh, translate and interpret scripture better than this. And if this is how this class is going to be, I'm not going to be coming to this class. And so uh, the, the instructor did, didn't have much to say, and the student did not return. So um, what, what would you have told that student? Um, maybe, maybe you should stop studying Greek because you can't nail down the exact meaning with the scientific method. Uh, maybe you should tell him, just pray and ask God to show you the correct interpretation. Maybe you should say, well, you know, you ought to check some commentaries to see what others have said. Um, and I'll finish my story later. So the outline for what I'm going to say is on the back of your bulletin. So I have four areas that I'm going to talk about. And the first is the Anabaptist view of biblical interpretation is Christocentric. Christ is a centric. So the first principle of biblical interpretation is the life and teaching of Jesus as presented in the Gospels and interpreted in the rest of the New Testament. So I'm going to read a quote here from Harold S. Bender, who was a uh, well-known uh, 20th century Anabaptist Mennonite historian, died in um, 1962, I believe. So he wrote, Jesus Christ is the center of Scripture and is himself, as no book can ever be, the supreme, final, and complete revelation of God to men. This is the claim of Christ himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And he, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. It is a testimony of the New Testament generally. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And John said, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath revealed him. Christ himself is the Savior, the object of faith, the center of our life in God. As this, he is also the central content of Scripture. 
Even the Old Testament, Jesus said, testifies of him. Search the scriptures, and you do well, for they are they which testify of me. And did he not expound to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself? Unless we come to him, we have not received the revelation of God in any true sense. Christ is the full revelation of God because he gathers up in himself all that was previously made known of the will and purpose of God. He fulfills it and completes it, full of grace and truth. We are certainly not saved by history, nor by the Bible, but by receiving by faith the crucified, risen, and ever-living Lord Jesus Christ, who was and is and ever shall be, who is revealed in the Scripture. We are biblical only if our confession, our teaching, our theology are controlled completely by the great central message of the Bible. And by this we mean centrally the New Testament, where Christ is fully presented. Hence, the New Testament becomes the norm of Scripture because of Christ. We see even the Old Testament through Christ. That's the end of the quote from Harold Bender. For all Anabaptists, Christ was the center of Scripture, the beginning and the end, and all Scripture must be seen and evaluated through the spectacles of Christ and his apostles. That was their view. Christ is the cohesive person and the principle in all the Scriptures and the key to understanding Scripture, both Old and New Testament. The Swiss Anabaptists and Menno Simons talked about the life and doctrine of Christ and the apostles. Menno said that any teaching or interpretation that is contrary to the intention of Jesus Christ is false. For Anabaptists, interpretations that violate the clear pattern of Christ's life and teaching are invalid, no matter how well a trained theologian or Bible scholar might defend them intellectually. And Anabaptists often made these kind of comments in their uh, at their trials and in their writings that um, they called them the scribes, that the scribes, meaning the learned ones, some of the Anabaptists were learned ones too, but they said that all of that intellectual knowledge and learning and whatever has not helped them, and they are wrong because the thing they're teaching is not what Jesus taught. So this is a basic principle. According to Hebrews 1, God has spoken throughout human history, but not always has he spoken through his Son the way he does in these last days. Prior to Jesus Christ, God spoke in a variety of ways, to mention a few angels, laws written in stone, and uh, even 
a braying donkey, but in these last days he has spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. The same Christ who created the world and lived throughout the Old Testament came to earth to enflesh the message of God within his person for all to behold. And this Christ who lived and died and rose again to redeem fallen humanity is upholding what he created by the word of his power reclaiming and redeeming his fallen creation and continuing to speak into his created disorder or order to bring harmony to chaos. And so Christ is the key to knowing the Father and the key to interpreting and applying Scripture. Anabaptist said that the written word, no matter how well it is interpreted or understood, is a dead letter, a dead letter in the heart until the living word Christ and the Holy Spirit gives life and meaning to it, to the scripture, through its application to the person's life. The Bible, as interpreted by the life and teaching of Christ, is the final authority for Christian living and the standard by which believers must measure their lives. Christ and the Spirit stand above the written Word and interpret and apply the Word to our hearts and lives. Now, a little bit of acknowledgement here of concerns people might have. Some of us might fear that by making who Christ is and what he taught the basic hermeneutical principle in understanding Scripture, might fear that we will divorce what Christ tells us to do from the clear commands of Scripture and that each interpreter will construct a will of Christ that corresponds to his own liking. I've had a few people tell me that, that this is dangerous to make Christ the measure. This fear is rooted, I believe, in a failure to see the integral relationship between what Christ tells us to do and who Christ is as revealed in Scripture. I'll just say that... In my conversations with people, sometimes people will tell me something that they're thinking of doing. And uh, <clears throat> depending on the kind of relationship I have with them, um, I will ask them where they, uh, what the source of that thought is, the source of that decision is, of where they got this. And they'll say whatever they say, and uh, I'll ask, do you think that corresponds to what Christ taught and, and how he lived as you see it in the Gospels? And they're like, oh, well, I, I hadn't thought of that. Um, <clears throat> their thoughts about what to do were the results of reasonings in their minds. 
and it wasn't connected to Christ, or they interpreted the verse however they did. <clears throat> so the Gospels are an accurate record of the life and teachings of Christ, and in the epistles we find the application of the teaching of Christ within the life of the early church. And this accurate scriptural record of the teachings and life of Christ is a standard by which we know who Christ is and what he taught, how he applied his teaching in his own life, and how he wants us to live. Christ is the absolute norm of Christian behavior. When we ask ourselves how Christ will live today or how he wants us to live today, our answer cannot violate the examples we have in the Bible of how he lived, nor can the answer violate the commands of the New Testament. So the second principle here is that biblical revelation is progressive. So this might seem like a very basic principle to us, and we probably all believe this our whole lives and haven't really thought that much about it. But in the 16th century, that's not how it was. It may not be how it is for some people even today. So as a summary of the two camps, difference between the two camps, uh, 16th century, I'll call them mainline Protestant reformers, like Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, Butcher, Bullinger, many others, <clears throat> they said that the Old and New Testaments are on an equal plane of authority. And by contrast, Anabaptists said that the New Testament supersedes the Old. So as a result, the mainline reformers concluded that the church today is similar to Israel in the Old Testament, which then led to their practice of infant baptism, uh, which they said corresponds to Old Testament circumcision. And they also joined church and state, as in the Old Testament, and taught that believers should fight and kill. So there's a number of issues here that were affected by the view that the, the Old and New Testaments are on an equal plane, a flat view of the Scripture is called. So Anabaptists said that the New Testament is over the Old Testament or is a fuller revelation of the will of God. The Old Testament points forward to Christ and the New Testament is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Since Christ is the central figure in Scripture and the final, ultimate revealer of God and God's will, Anabaptists argued that we must see biblical revelation as progressive. That was their word, progressive. Scripture is not a flat book. The laws and regulations of the Old Testament are not all that God has revealed. And for example, since Israel was both a nation-state and a religious institution, it had to punish evil and maintain law and order in society. 
I don't know if you've thought about that much. I have. It seems like a problem. Um, Because that's how it was then. And in the New Testament, this responsibility is not given to the church. Although Anabaptists did believe the church had a responsibility to practice discipline, to disciple its people, as outlined in Matthew 18, which they viewed, I had an instructor say this, that you'd, um, I believe this might have been an instructor at Liberty, actually, who said that, um, Mr. Hamer, he said that you have to understand that Anabaptists saw their practice of discipline as an alternative to killing people. So the only way that you could discipline somebody in the union of church and state, the only way you could get them out of Society, maybe. You either had to uh, send them off to another country or you had to kill them. And Anabaptists solved all of that with excluding them uh, from practice of participation in church life rather than killing. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of which is not how many of us have thought about church discipline. It's really harsh. Uh, but it's not as harsh as killing someone. I'm not sure there's things to think about that. So Anabaptists saw the Old Testament as preparation for Christ in the New Testament. Uh, they, the law, they said, the law shows man what he cannot do and takes away all his self-confidence. It shows him that he's a sinner and, and in desperation. That's a fairly common view back then. In desperation, then he'll turn to Christ. This is the Old Testament prepares a person for Christ. It shows him by the law how he has failed. I'm skipping things here. Uh, So since Christ is the central figure in Scripture and the final ultimate revealer of God and God's will, we we must view the relationship between the Old Testament and New Testament as promise in the Old and fulfillment in the New. Type and shadow in the old and the reality in the new. Law in the old, gospel in the new, although there is law and gospel in both. This means that ceremonial regulations in the Old Testament are not required in the New Testament, such as circumcision, ceremonial washing, sacrifices, unclean foods, ascetic-type regulations concerning eating, holy days, feast days. And Christ has removed 
the need to keep the Old Testament laws where they have been, according to Scripture, nailed to the cross. And uh, there are statements like that in Colossians and 2 Corinthians, Matthew. I have a number of verses here. I want to say, even if one sees practical value in following the various ceremonial and dietary regulations, which I know some people who feel that way, even if you see some value in uh, following these from the Old Testament, the New Testament is clear that the call to faith and repentance does not include a call to obedience to the laws and restrictions of the Old Testament. So Christ himself is the example of how to use the Old Testament. And the verses here on the board, Luke 24 reads, And beginning in Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. The Christ, the living Word, is the author, interpreter, and applier, applier of the written Word, both the Old and New Testaments. And along with the Holy Spirit gives life, and unity to the written word. Our interpretation of the written word must be consistent with the example and character of Christ as revealed in the word. Although the living Christ provides consistency and unity in one's handling of the scripture, all the Old Testament scripture is seen as pointing forward to Christ, and this fact alone results in both diversity and unity between the Old Testament and New Testament. Now, I want to make a comment about, um, and th this is me maybe urging you to do this. <clears throat> I don't know how many of you uh, would be like I was when I was 25 years old. 22. Um, Maybe the word would be distraught. Um, with this responsibility to understand the scripture and tell people what it means and make applications and actually it was really quite stressful. And that's part of the reason that I went to Liberty. I had to learn Greek. I had to learn Greek. And it was going to solve all these issues. I was going to discover the science, you know, of all of this. And uh, I can still remember in the mid-90s, how old was I? Forty-some. I was rather distraught about some things, and I decided, well, I don't know where this came from, probably God. God probably put it in my mind. The thought came to me that it might be helpful if I would read the Gospels and see who Jesus is in the Gospels. And I had never really done that. 
read the Gospels with the intent of, the only thing I was looking for is what does this say about Jesus? So I'm reading the Gospels and the, the stories and whatever all of that was. And it literally changed the way I thought about the Scripture and and it reduced it reduced my anxiety by quite a bit. And I don't know that I know to this day, I don't know if I understand all of that, but I, I just recommend it. Just just try that. Don't don't read in a big hurry, but read it. Read the Gospels and look for what it reveals about Jesus. The next principle, the Anabaptist view of biblical interpretation, says that the testimony of committed believers throughout the history of the church, including the consensus of the local church, is the only adequate context and form for biblical interpretation. By the way, maybe that student in the Greek class could have helped himself if he would have thought about this. So knowing what is true and being able to understand Scripture depends on the quality. This this might take a little bit to get, but knowing what is true and being able to understand Scripture depends on the quality of the relationship between believers. It also depends on the quality of a person's spiritual life. So I'm pausing here to see if you heard what I said. Being able to understand Scripture depends in part on the quality of a person's spiritual life, and it depends on the quality of relationships that people have with each other when they are seeking to understand together what the Scripture says. It is a basic novelty in the discussion of hermeneutics, how to understand Scripture. It's a basic novelty to say that believers, that the text is best understood in a congregation. I think the common view is that each individual can just figure it out. I mean, I spent how many thousand dollars to do that? I did learn things. It was helpful. But since the Anabaptists had a high view of the believers, they did have a high view of surrender to Jesus and following Him. They also had a high view of the individual believer's ability to understand, interpret, and apply the word to one's life. And in fact, they were quick, probably too quick, to discipline people who did not do this, who did not apply the Scripture to their lives and live upright lives. Yet they did not think that the individual's interpretation of the Scripture could override the understanding of the whole body. 
In other words, each believer's understanding needed to be submitted to his brothers and sisters. And I'm trying to anticipate some challenge to that. Uh, One could ask, of course, how they expected a whole body of imperfect believers to have a more perfect understanding of God's will than the imperfect individual believers had. You could ask that. And I think, I'll just say, I think it's obvious that a perfect understanding of God's will must be seen as a goal, just like uh, being perfected in holiness is a goal, and not a single person in this room has achieved it yet perfectly. Hummer said each member of the congregation should speak his convictions, and then the congregation should decide who has spoken more nearly according to Scripture. And this was a uniquely Anabaptist view that a text is best understood in a congregation. For the community to enter into the exegetical process, that is just understanding the Scripture, several things must happen. The teachers, preachers, and trained scholars cannot think they are the only ones who know what the Bible teaches. They're not the only ones who can have thoughts, understanding of the Scripture. They must become leaders in the discussion rather than, my word here, dogmaticians. The focus must move from what does the text mean to me to what does the text mean to us. According to this approach, the tools of literary analysis are not in themselves enough. The result of this approach is that the common man in the pew, the one I'm saying is what I think is scriptural, the result of this is that the common man in the pew becomes a full member of the church. This, This approach of course, means that the ordained are no longer viewed as the trained clergy. And this was, as mentioned before, a common complaint by Anabaptists, these trained clergy, who possess and enforce the truth they discovered, but instead they lead the body in studying and talking and thinking and praying about the meaning and application of the Bible through their public preaching, their teaching, their conversations in private have various avenues and in their leadership during various discussions in the life of the church. So the the value of the community and I, I do want to emphasize I am not saying by those statements that that the ordained need to be helpless and have no input and give no direction. I'm not saying that at all. Okay, the last point. The Anabaptist Christian view of biblical interpretation places living alongside believing. 
So you have living, which is about doing and obeying. And the word for that, the big word is orthopraxy. You place that alongside believing certain truths, things that, you know, say, I believe this, I believe that, which is called doctrine or orthodoxy. And it views right living as the necessary result of right believing. In other words, we evaluate whether a person believes right or whether the person lives right. Knowing what is true depends on following Christ in humble obedience. Anabaptist hermeneutics is the hermeneutic of obedience. So according to Hans Denk, no man can know Christ unless he follows after him in life. This statement affirms several fundamental truths widely held by Anabaptists. First, that there is a direct relationship between discipleship and obedience. And second, that a lack of discipleship limits the believer's ability to know. Uh, I'll just say here, so one of the realities is, uh, maybe I learned this by getting older, I don't know. People live what they believe, and they believe what they live. People believe what they live. Whatever people believe, they begin to defend as a belief. I mean, whatever people live, they defend as a belief. The Anabaptist view of how one knows truth says that understanding of truth depends on discipleship and a desire to obey. Anabaptists rejected the idea that all one needs to know is the meaning of words in order to understand God's will and affirmed the idea that the ability to understand the meaning of the Bible rests not only in one's ability to know the meaning of words, but also in the kind of spiritual experience and quality of obedience of the person. Uh, this, this position has various important implications one's view of the church and how people interpret and apply the Bible. First, Anabaptists focused on the integrity and obedience of the listening congregation to Christ to speak through his written word. Second, if the kind of spiritual experience and quality of obedience of the person reading the words affects how one interprets the Bible, then church discipline, church admonition, is necessary not only for holiness, but also for the ability of the body to understand the Scripture. One purpose of discipleship, then, is to equip people to know the truth. Anabaptists were convinced that knowing what is true depends on following Christ in humble obedience. Their argument, their argument that only those who choose to do God's will can understand or know what is true came from John 7, 17. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So 
The statement, if anyone wills to do his will, means if anyone wants to do God's will, he can know concerning the teaching. He can understand the teaching, the doctrine. The argument that only those who hold to or follow Christ's words or practice the truth they know can know truth came from John 8, 31 and 32, which reads, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The argument that a person cannot know and practice truth if he loves his life more than he loves truth comes from John 12, where Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. The conviction that only those who are willing to obey what they do not understand can know what is true is based on the John 13 feet washing passage in which Christ asked Peter to practice or obey something that he would understand only after he had obeyed. For now we are called to follow the example of Christ, to walk humbly as a servant before God and others. And we will understand if we obey Christ. So I've attempted to address these uh, four points. Uh, although all 16th century, this is a conclusion, although all 16th century Reformed or Protesting Protestant groups were biblicists in the sense that they all believed in the sola scriptura or scripture alone principle. And they rooted their positions firmly in Scripture. Everybody did. They thought they were. And used a Bible text to defend their positions. The Anabaptists differed from other Reformers on what this Biblicism meant for hermeneutics. An especially significant difference between Anabaptists and other protesting groups in relation to being Biblicist, was a common Anabaptist practice of placing the New Testament over the Old and demanding that all of Scripture be understood and applied in light of who Christ is and what He taught and how He lived. For Anabaptists, although both covenants contain law and grace, in the New we have Christ who enables us to live the life of faith and obedience. And they were big on that point. Another significant difference between Anabaptists and other protesting groups was the Anabaptist view that faith in Scripture meant acceptance of faith as the moral authority for life rather than demanding a rational explanation of its authoritative doctrine. 
and about to define faith as obedience. Uh, now, the Greek students, I'll close with this. Um, that was a very enlightening conversation for me. I think I was kind of like that student. I was expecting a scientific uh, way to approach the scripture, and it was going to solve everything for me. And it was kind of disconcerting to hear him. And and then when he didn't come back to class, that, that was rather shocking. Um, I think it was in all of that that I realized that in addition to knowing Greek, which I did okay in Greek classes, but in addition to knowing Greek and 100 rules of interpretation, I needed several things. I realized that. I needed to have a deep relationship with Christ that is rooted in who Christ is in the Word. And I, I think it uh, helped me appreciate um, appreciate this church. And this is a long time ago. This is like in 85, 86. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll say, I don't know if I should say this, <clears throat> back in that day, I came to church with my Greek New Testament. also had the King James, but I came with my Greek New Testament. And you know, being a student at Liberty, I felt a great need to analyze everything I heard. I got really good at that, you know, analyze every single thing every instructor said. And I found, you know, this problem, that problem, this other problem. And uh, I felt a great need to do that. But then I also came to church and it was that way. I'm sorry, but I was. I was very thoughtful about everything I heard. And uh, I think that experience in that class was helpful to me to relax a little bit and uh, give up on... Um, maybe analyzing and dissecting everything and uh, and being more trusting of God, more trusting of the Word, more trusting of the Holy Spirit, more trusting of, of uh, people at church. And it was helpful to me. So blessing to each of you. I hope you were able to gather something here.